Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 1. We're in verses 67 through 80. And this is Zechariah's response after the birth of his son, John. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask for your help, that your spirit will give us understanding of all that you've revealed, that you lead us into all truth and apply these truths to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. They were the Carbon High School football team, and they had the longest losing streak on history, on record, in the state of Utah. For three straight seasons, they had lost every game. The season before the interview was done with the head coach, they had only scored three touchdowns. They were the butt of every joke in the state, and especially at the school. Most of the team had quit after a certain point, but a faithful few were persevering on. Head coach was a man named Leo Parr. He had this to say. He said it was as if winning was a foreign thing to them. It was as if it had been bred in them that they could never, ever win. Leo Parr was asked about the most difficult moments in the season, and he told two stories. He said, one night we were punting the ball on fourth down, which was a common thing for them, for a team only scoring three touchdowns in a year. But there was a strong headwind that night, and so the punter kicked it, and the ball actually went backwards. He said, that just really kind of captured everything about our team. All these years of loss, of winning nothing. And then he told another story about the biggest game that they had had all year. They were playing... Let me get the name correct, Juan Diego High School. And Juan Diego was the state champion team. They were very good. It was the first quarter, and they had held them scoreless through the first quarter. There were only two minutes left. And so one of the assistant coaches came up to Coach Parr and commented and said, we're playing really good tonight. We've held them scoreless through the first quarter. That's never happened before. And Coach Parr said, well, just wait a minute. There's two minutes left. In the remaining two minutes of the first quarter, Juan Diego High School scored four touchdowns. Two interceptions were returned for touchdowns, and they ran two long plays. He said this summed it up. This was who we were. And so he was asked the question in the interview, how do you motivate a team? 
when they're dealing with this kind of loss, when they're absolutely devastated that there is no morale, there doesn't seem to be any hope or reason to play. He's a very optimistic man. He said, I had to convince them that miracles do happen. If they were going to get out on the field, they had to believe that miracles do happen. Obviously, the team had given up hope on any miracle that under such demoralizing circumstances, it's difficult to encourage hope. And when it comes to understanding this passage about the birth of John and the story we have of his father, Zechariah, it's extremely important for us to translate that experience of hopelessness and discouragement into the story of where Israel was in the first century. Because you see, they had received promises from God. And these promises spoke of a day where God was going to renew and restore everything He had promised to do. That He was going to make the world right. That He would return to dwell with His people Israel. That there would be a Davidic king upon the throne. These magnificent promises. And there had been silence for 400 years since one of the last prophets had spoken of those promises. And there was reality. The historical realities going on in Zechariah's life and also in Israel, there was profound sadness and grief. We find this recorded in several of our Psalms, especially in Psalm 89, where they're asking the question, where is God's steadfast love that He promised? There was this yawning gap taking place between the historical reality and the promises of God. And it's in that gap that cynicism finds very fertile soil to grow. And so Zechariah, when he's confronted by the angel in Luke chapter 1, what is his response? He's told by the angel that he's going to have a son. His wife was old and she was barren. And so they were told something miraculous that they were going to have a son. But then he was told who this son was going to be. And this son was going to play a role in God's great plan to renew the cosmos. That's what was going to happen. And so what we learn from the angel is that what we learned, Zechariah asked the question, he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered in verse 19, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And then in verse 20, significantly, he says, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. And this was Zechariah's numbness. It was his cynicism coming to bear. He had been told that God was intervening now in history, that after long silence, that silence was going to be broken. And Zechariah didn't believe it. You see, he had become demoralized. He had become accustomed to defeat. 400 years of silence had had its impact upon the people. That when God once again says that He's renewing His speech and activity in the world, that He's renewing His purposes, there was unbelief. And it's important for us to reflect on this as well because we're not so terribly different that we can understand Zechariah's response, can't we? That there is this enormous gap between the promises that God gives us and then the historical reality, the disappointments, the grief, the shame, the different 
pieces of history that we carry with us that seem so far removed from what God has promised and said He has done and is doing and will do one day. And that we can understand Zechariah's disappointment and then his doubt and his silence. Like the Carbon High School football team, we get demoralized and we can become very accustomed to defeat. Zechariah takes an interesting journey though. He goes from silence into what is a very famous song in the history of the church. For certain traditions, it's sung almost every day. Zechariah goes from this dumbfounded silence where God mutes him into an explosion of praise after his son, John, was born. And so how did he make that transition from silence to song? How does he go from despair to rejoicing? This is the question before us this morning, what's important for us to look at. And there's two things that we find in Zechariah's song. The first is this, is that we need to broaden our horizon. That is, when we are in the middle of the despair and the gloom, when we feel the gap between God's promise and the reality of our lives, is that typically what needs to happen to us is that we need to broaden the horizon of our vision and perspective. This is what happens to Zechariah. Obviously, he lived in a tremendous grief. He had a life that had not been what he had expected. He had no heir to carry on the family name. And now he lived in the context of Roman occupation, and it didn't seem that the promises of God to Israel were going to be fulfilled. It was despair and gloom. But then in his song, if you look in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. The important word to key on here is the word visit. That Zechariah uses the language of a royal visitation that was used in the Old Testament at very key moments in Israel's history. That God coming to dwell with His people. It was at times like Passover and other major interventions by God where it was said that He visits. And Zechariah is celebrating that God has intervened that something dramatic is taking place. He repeats the word visit in verse 78. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That in God's tender mercy, He was coming to visit to be with His people. You find that there is a parallel promise to this visitation because this was the Jewish expectation that God would come in His glory and dwell in His temple once again. And there was a second piece to this expectation. It's in verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. And that is that when God returned to the temple, He would also bring His agent, the Messiah, to come who would be of the house of David who would come and lead the people. But what Luke is encouraging us to see is that this great visitation and this son of David who was coming to sit upon his throne, that this visitation was happening inside of one person. And that's what was so unique about Jesus. Perhaps what no one had really expected. That all the promises were being packed in 
and fulfilled in a very strange way that God was dwelling with His people. He was dwelling as a man with them. As the One who was the Son of David promised to come to lead the people. And what's so important for us in the middle of gloom and despair is to catch a sight of God's much broader promises. You see, we can all very easily become so overwhelmed with the difficulties of our lives, whether it's failing health or whether it's promises that we feel like God has made that aren't being realized, whether it's just the disappointments and griefs of living in a broken world, whatever way that the fall and the brokenness of our world pinches us, it's very easy for those circumstances and situations to collapse in on us and narrow our vision and focus. And we can become people who are completely self-focused at that moment. We're filled with doubt and cynicism and despair. What happens for Zechariah is he gets caught up in this broader promise. It's a frame around our lives that, that puts everything in perspective. Despite the drama and disappointments that go on in that daily realm and sphere, that God has much broader purposes that He's working out. That promise actually goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. When God curses the serpent, you find in Genesis 3.15 that God promises that the serpent will bruise your heel. He will bruise the seed of the woman's heel, but that seed of the woman will crush his head. It's what we call the first promise of the Gospel in Scripture. And it is pointing us that though we don't know everything else that's about to play out, that God is going to work this out. I was listening to This American Life. It's episode number 374. It's a curious one. It's rather funny. It's called Somewhere Out There. If you've never listened to This American Life, you ought to pick it up. Somewhere Out There is a, is a love story episode full of kind of unlikely love stories. The main feature story, though, was between an American man and a Chinese woman. It was a funny story because they don't share a common language. English wasn't easy for her to learn, and Chinese wasn't easy for him to learn. They could barely communicate, but over the years, they, they fell in love with one another, finding different ways to correspond. As you're listening, you're thinking there's no way it's going to work out. But the only reason you know it's going to work out is Ira Glass begins the story like this. This story ends well. The couple does marry. This is what God has done for you in Genesis 3.15. The story ends well. We don't understand all the different turns and the different twist in the plot, and there are very difficult and hard moments. But what we read this morning in Luke chapter 1 is the fulfillment of the promise, and we're waiting for the final full installment of it, but God has made good on the promise that He made when He told you it was going to end well. In the midst of the discouragement and the difficulty of our lives, this is what is so crucial for us is we must broaden our horizon and not just define the success of our lives based on the little daily dramas, but based on our place in God's much greater story that He's been working out. Because this 
ends well. He sent His Redeemer into the world, the Son of David, who is God Himself dwelling with us in order to redeem His world and make it right. And one day He'll raise it to a a new level of beauty and existence where we will be one with Him, dwelling with Him, walking with Him in ways that even exceed the original Garden of Eden. That's how your God says it ends. And so this is what we need. We need to always broaden our horizon. Now the second piece to this in the middle of the discouragement and kind of hopeless despair is we need to remember grace's benefits. Zechariah's song, once he works out of the themes of God dwelling with us and visiting us, and that he would send his servant David, he goes on to pull down on further themes that this was what was promised to Abraham. And so he's reciting the Old Testament story, but then he specifically begins to speak about what was going to happen. And there are two things specifically. First, we are free from our enemies. Look with me in verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then once again in verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. What Zechariah is celebrating is that God was going to deliver His people. And they were specifically going to be delivered from their enemies. Now for many first century Jews, when they initially heard that, how would they have defined it? The enemies were the Romans. It was those who were politically opposed to them. To those who had done them great harm. To those who had trampled on them. Those who had enslaved them. Those who had made them debtors. That was their enemies. But what's crucial for us is understanding that when Luke puts his Gospel together, he does so in a very tight and dense way. That he weaves themes all the way through the Gospel. And when we look at the theme of enemy in the Gospel of Luke, it undergoes a transformation where the fundamental difference in history is not between Roman and Jew. It's not between black and white. It's not between left and right. That the fundamental difference that comes to bear here, those who we classify as enemies, you need to look in Luke 11. Luke 11, verses 14 through 23. Listen carefully to this. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. 
But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Do you see how Jesus redefines enemy? It's provocative because Jesus sees the enemy being the spiritual force that we name Satan. A personal figure who has a shadowy existence in the Old Testament becomes into full fruition in the New. And that He is the one opposed to God's people. And that He holds them inside of His castle. He holds all humanity captive. That He's the strong man, but Jesus says He comes to plunder the strong man. And then that His enemies now in the world are those who don't stand with Him. Those who don't see Him as the liberator. As the one who's come to guide them into the way of peace by showing mercy. And friends, this is what Jesus says He comes to liberate His people from. That we are free from our enemies. That those who don't align themselves with God's purposes and God's way that even though they may have incredible influence in our world right now, that that's not perpetual. That that's not the end of the day. That even though the wrong is often so strong in our world, that it is not the last word about our world. We are free from enemies. But here's the marvelous thing about it. That when you're free from your enemies, we're not free then to hate them. When we're free from those who oppose us or don't care for our values and beliefs, who don't agree with us, that that isn't permission for us simply to hate. Because what does Jesus teach in Luke 5 about enemies? In Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, he highlights for us, excuse me, it's in Luke 7, he highlights for us our relationship to enemies. Excuse me, I'm going to get it this time. Luke 6, <laughs> verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That if you're free from your enemy, it doesn't mean you're free to hate them but rather being free from them, you're not under their power and control. So what can you do? You can bless them. You can do the very thing that is counterintuitive because you're not under their dominion. And so Jesus creates a unique people when He frees us from those who are not aligned with Him. And He frees us into a completely new way of relating to them rather than seeing it as the thems who we must oppose, we can love them. We can serve them. We can have mercy on them. We can pity them. And this is the first benefit that Jesus takes us into. This is the benefit of grace. Now the second thing is not only we're free from enemies, but we're also free from our sins. This is a strong theme inside of Zechariah's song. You first... Find it in verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. 
that he was coming to give light to those who walk in darkness. And this is what Zechariah celebrates, that he understood that his son was the forerunner of God's visitation of the people Israel, a son of David who was coming, and that in him would come the forgiveness of sins. And so Zechariah is announcing a day that was arriving. There was going to be a new era called the forgiveness of sins in which there would be a new reality, the personal forgiveness of sins. This is what God had planned that God was going to relieve His people of their debt, of that which they could not pay. That the heel of the son of Eve was going to crush the head of the serpent. That He was going to deliver His people who were held by Him. Jesus goes on in Luke chapter 5 to give a very graphic depiction of what it means to be forgiven. And it's important for us to reflect on because the forgiveness of sins can be very common to us. It can be a commonplace. We talk about it a lot. Each week, we confess sins to God. And in that kind of system, sin can become something that we're almost comfortable with. That we confess our sins, yes, And God is gracious and good to forgive them. Yes. But what we often lose is we become numb to the reality of sin and to the depth of grace and the beauty of it, how good it is. And in the middle of discouragement and despair, it is so important for us to remember that we are free from our sins. And so there is this encounter here in Luke 5 that's so helpful for us. There's a paralytic man who his friends bring him to Jesus. I'll read the account for you. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And it's fascinating. Obviously, in our scientific and materialistic world, we think it's probably a greater thing that Jesus looked at the man and said, rise and walk. We think that takes a greater power, that that shows a greater majesty of God. But for Jesus, it was not so. That was simply exemplary that he has the power and the authority and the right to dismiss sins. 
That was Jesus' perspective on these things. That He has the power and the ability to dismiss sins, so of course He is the one who can give this man the ability to walk. He's the one who undoes the curse and the brokenness of our world, which is sin's catastrophe. And so of course He can tell the man to rise and walk this one small impact of our world's curse. And friends, when we hear that the forgiveness of sins has come, something miraculous has fallen on us. Something that is more difficult than telling someone to get up and walk has happened to you. That God has intervened in your life. He's done something so significant that it's difficult for us to even fully understand. This is what's happened. Two things tend to happen to us is we do oftentimes become numb to sin. And then sometimes we also can simultaneously struggle to forgive ourselves. That we hear all the promises of the gospel, but because we know the depth of our own failures and the numbers of people that have been crushed by those failures, that we tend to think, no, grace isn't really reserved for somebody like me. Now, we still may be in church, but we just hold reserve and doubts. And having talked to enough people over the years, I know it's real. Marilyn Robinson in her book, Home, captures this dynamic very well. She tells the story of a family, the Balton family. Balton was a Presbyterian minister, and he had a son who was raised in the church who rebelled. He was a prodigal. He goes away for many years, but suddenly he returns. He comes back to visit the family. His sister is living with their aging father, and she has a conversation with him. One afternoon, he goes out uh, to throw baseball with a neighborhood boy. And uh, that boy, he was also the son of another pastor in, in the small town. And he walks out the door with the baseball mitt, and then he comes back into the house. Listen to what he says. He says, I'm disreputable. I forget that from time to time, but I have it on excellent authority. The good reverend wouldn't approve. And he is living here with his own self-judgment, his own self-condemnation. What he says is that I'm not worthy to go out and play with the, the pastor's son because of everything that I've done and the mess I've made of my family and of all the accumulated debts that I've created, and everyone knows that I've been a hellion and torn up everything that I've ever touched. That is Jack Balton's story from cover to cover in the book. He then goes on to tell his sister, Glory, he says, you have to help me remember this. He says, from time to time, I'm prone to forget. She asks, well, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to help you remember he chuckled, and he said, stop being so kind to me. And what he's saying is he didn't deserve the kindness. That all his faults and failures, that they couldn't really be redeemed. That it's just simply too deep. There's too much shame involved in this. All of my life and the disaster it's become. And friends, that is the type of of guilt and disappointment and shame that we can carry, and we can carry it for years. 
And the thing is, is that the forgiveness of sins has come. It's real. It is miraculous. It intervenes. It saves and delivers us through the One who is capable. The One who plundered the strong man's house and defeated our enemy. He is the One who's also crushed our sins. He's sufficient and able to do that on your behalf. And it is when we pull those two things together, being free from enemies, being free from our sins, that we began to gain a perspective that can pull us out of despair. That God has done the unthinkable for us. That God has also involved us in His cosmic plan. And He set a frame around our lives that lets us know it ends well. And He's assured us that we're part of His people because of the forgiveness of our sins. That He delivers us from our enemies. And so we don't have to be like the Carbon High School football team. Demoralized, disappointed, expecting to lose. And we don't have to end like Zechariah, just full of doubt. That we can join Zechariah in his journey from silence into song because of what God has done on our behalf and because of what God will do. This is what led Zechariah to sing. It's the only thing in this life that can actually give you meaningful and lasting joy. That your God is for you. That He works this out for your good. All the disappointment, all the grief will be washed away. And He's doing it through this One who came, Jesus.